We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Hello there. Over the last few weeks, I've been making special episodes of this podcast to help us get through the strange and uncertain times of COVID-19. It's been an incredibly special experience and I can't thank you all enough for your kind messages and emails and for the beautiful stories you shared with me for last week's listener special. On that note, a number of you lovely people got in touch offering to send sweet peas for Anne, a doctor in Ireland. And when I passed that on, she got back in touch to tell me that she'd arranged to buy them from her garden centre after all. So no sweet peas necessary, but thank you. You really are the best listeners ever. This week's special is slightly different. We're reverting to the usual format of a guest discussing their three failures. But the reason I wanted to use it now is that one of the failures we talk about is particularly relevant for anyone struggling with job loss or work-related stress at this moment in time. So I'm very grateful to the wonderful Henry Holland for choosing to talk about the failure of his business, because I'm sure it will strike a chord with many of you. So yes, This is the final coronavirus special for now, but How to Fail with Elizabeth Day will be back for a brand new season of sparkling guests on the 3rd of June. I can't wait to share them with you. Until then, stay safe and know that we're in this together. And now, on with today's episode. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Henry Holland is an acclaimed fashion designer, but it might have been very different. As a teenager, he filled out an online careers questionnaire that said he should be a fishmonger. But fishmongering's loss was fashion's gain. In the early 2000s, Holland, who was then working as a fashion editor for teen magazines, started designing rhyming slogan t-shirts for his friends. They included the legendary, I'll tell you who's boss, Kate Moss, and rapidly became a fashion crowd in-joke. Soon, 
everyone who was anyone wanted a Henry Holland t-shirt. He set up his business through a PayPal link on his MySpace page, and his t-shirts were modelled by his childhood friend Agnes Dean, who used to serve him fish and chips in Ramsbottom, Lancashire, where they both grew up. Dean went on to become a supermodel, Holland to found his own label, House of Holland. He became a mainstay of London Fashion Week, and his clothes have been worn by everyone from Katy Perry to the singer M.I.A. As a designer, Holland is prized for his wit and playfulness, with British Vogue calling him cool and quirky. He is, then, that rarest of things, a fashion designer with a sense of humour. But in March, Holland was confronted with a stark financial reality, which was no laughing matter. He called in the administrators for the business which bore his name. It has, he admits, been a tough time, but one that has taught him many lessons. More on that later. Beloved of journalists, Holland always gives good quote, and in an interview with ID magazine a couple of years ago, he revealed that one of his most overused phrases was, don't worry, I hate myself for it. So, Henry Holland, what do you hate yourself for today? <laughs> just listening to that intro and just getting, <laughs> feeling very proud of myself. No, I get it. Uh, was it was it cringeworthy? Did you did you cringe a little listening to that? I did, but I think I cringed more at how much I was enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so so much for coming on How to Fail. It is such a delight. You're my first ever fashion designer, in fact. Is that true? No. Yeah. And we're, we're all full of failures, so I don't know how that's happened. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I feel very, very honoured to ask to be on. It's a pleasure. We are recording in the time of coronavirus, so we're recording remotely. We are. Um, what are you wearing today, Henry? Given that I can't see you, I'd like you to describe it. You see, here I'm presented with a real choice, whether to tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm half dressed up for work. I think when you're working from home, whenever I've worked from home, you have to sort of get up, get out of the house and dress for the day. So I'm just wearing like ripped jeans and a shirt, but I am pairing it with a tie-dye croc because <laughs> it is self-isolation after all. A tie-dye croc? Did yes, that's true. Uh, the shoes. Yeah. Okay. The shoes. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> there was something that there was something that I bought just before the world went into lockdown, and I was ridiculed immensely for them. And now I feel like you know somebody was looking down on me because these have been the most useful thing during this whole isolation period. <laughs> I think uh, so far. What is your earliest memory of clothes? Wow, I think my earliest memory of clothes is my parents separated when I was young and I used to swap houses every weekend. And so I think my earliest memory of clothes was always the whole rigmarole of packing up my clothes every weekend and what I was going to take with me and, and switching from, from house to house. But then a bit later on, maybe more about like around 12 or 13, when I got a clothing allowance from my parents, my memories of clothes kind of switched up a gear because I was able to buy my own clothes for the first time and I remember how liberating that felt and how much I was able to kind of express myself through what I was wearing. It's always been a big part of how I've approached clothes. Do you remember some of the first things that you bought with that allowance? Oh god yeah, Burton shirts. 
Czech shirts, jeans, Burton shirts that I used to wear to under-18s discos in Burnley. <laughs> it was at the time when everything was kind of bright orange or lime green. I don't know if you remember that. but Very well. Um, yeah, so I think I had one in each colour. And they were absolutely hideous, but they were so cheap that you were able to get one every weekend. I remember that. And did you have classic sort of early 90s fashion things like shell suits and global hypercolour sweatshirts? Yes and yes, absolutely. I actually <laughs> tried to get hold of hypercolour a few years ago and relaunch them with them. And I, because a few years ago, one man apparently bought all of the reactive dyes that had the technology in them and then I just couldn't get hold of him. Um, but yes, I'm, and I also have a horrendous shell suit story when one Christmas... We were having Christmas out in France with my mum and her house didn't have central heating. So I was sat in my brand new shell suit next to a Cala gas portable fire and the whole thing melted onto my arm. Oh my God. That <laughs> I was have been painful. I, it, it was just devastating. It didn't hurt me because there was so much sort of quilting and padding between the outer <laughs> layer and my skin. But I was devastated i'd waited for that shell suit for about two years and i finally got one and then i burnt it like the day i got it i was so upset oh henry <laughs> you started off there by talking about how your parents divorced when you were young mm. i think you were three is that right yeah so i'm guessing you were too young to remember anything different do you think it affected you at all having your parents separated <laughs> Not negatively in any way. I mean, I don't, as you say, I don't really remember anything different. And I've just always had four parents. And we've always had a really great, I've always had a great relationship with all of them. And my parents now have become sort of in my later life have become this sort of newly blended family. So all four of my parents had Christmas together this Christmas at my dad's house because my mum was in town. So she's sort of lived between England and France for many years and she's now back in the UK. And so we had this amazing Christmas where we were all back together, which was just weirdly normal, I suppose. That was so lovely. And how many siblings do you have? And I have a sister. Well, I have two sisters and a brother and then a stepsister. And in this age of social distancing and self-isolation, are you <laughs> yeah. keeping in touch with them all over FaceTime? Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. I've got FaceTime fatigue. I think everybody's starting <laughs> to suffer from it. Everyone's literally like, can we please just have a phone call? I don't need <laughs> to see your greasy face and I don't need you to see my spots. I think everybody's suddenly become obsessed with this. Oh, well, I need to see your face because I haven't seen it for ages. It's like, well, you wouldn't normally see my face, just phone me. Yes, we are all in touch. There's millions and millions of group chats and FaceTimes and house parties and WhatsApps and everything going on. And how are you feeling personally living in this so, curious time? Yeah, so, so strange. I mean... It's a really strange time for me in general because for the first time in 14 years I find myself without a company to run which is in, feels incredibly weird but coupled with the fact that the entire world has gone into lockdown and in, everything is in this weird state of flux and everything seems to be on pause in one way it's actually really useful for me because it's kind of forcing me to take a bit of time and put myself on pause and kind of quieting down the aggressive ambition that I've always listened to, I suppose, and just sort of take a minute. 
That's really interesting you say that because I it's almost as if your internal world and your external world are reflecting each other and that very rarely happens I think. Yes, yeah, so rare and I just I've never been able to kind of sit still and this whole situation is forcing me to do so and I think I'm kind of I'm really trying to embrace it as much as I can. I mean, I've built my a website in the last couple of days because I didn't have much to do so <laughs> I built myself a website and you know I'm kind of just trying to get all of my ducks in a row for when this ban or this isolation or whatever we're calling it lifts itself and we can all get back on with things. We're going to come on to your business because you've chosen it as one of your failures and I'm so so grateful that you have because I know that it will speak to an enormous amount of people who are also undergoing the very stressful reality that their businesses or their jobs might not survive this particular pandemic. So we'll come on to that. But I'm super interested there. You spoke about, and I'm quoting, your aggressive ambition. Now, <laughs> yeah. how, how young do you think you realised you were aggressively ambitious? Oh, gosh, pretty young, I'd say. I mean, the careers quiz that you mentioned where the outcome <laughs> was that I suggested I'd be a fishmonger. And I literally remember it clear as day. And it was because I said I liked, I wanted to work with people and I liked outdoors. <laughs> so that instantly must mean working on a fish market, right? When I was about what, 16, I think, and we were going through the whole process of which university we were going to go to and that kind of thing, I was just hell-bent on the fact that I was going to London. I didn't really care what I was going to study as long as I got somewhere that allowed me to be in London because I just saw it as the centre of the universe. I remember my, my tutors at college just being like, well, you can't only choose four options when you've got six possible options. And I was like, well, I'm not going anywhere else, so I'm not going to... I'm not bothered you know they were like well you need to put you know a backup and I was like well there's no backup and then I think the minute I got to London I felt this overwhelming sense that I had to be in industry I don't know if anybody else who studies in London feels the same but when you're getting on the tube especially when I was studying journalism which I was you're kind of in the midst of this industry that you're desperate to become a part of once you graduate but just finding yourself in the midst of it and surrounded by it, I just felt this overwhelming sense that I had to be a part of it now. You know, I was so impatient and it created this sort of anxiety that I needed to be doing it straight away. So I, I started doing work experience sort of in my first summer and from those work experience placements, I did quite a few. I ended up getting a job at a teen magazine that I just continued over my next two years of university. And when you say you were hell-bent on getting to London, was it because yeah. it felt that Ramsbottom, for all its many advantages, just maybe wasn't the place for you to find yourself? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say because I, I never felt unhappy there. I just definitely felt like I was meant for somewhere different. And I saw London as this real kind of bright lights, big city land of opportunity you know it wasn't until I got to London sort of side note is that I realized that a career in fashion was even a thing fashion careers were not something that people knew of back then it wasn't like you knew about production or you knew about probably design was the only career that I'd maybe heard of but in Ramsbottom people don't talk about careers in fashion you know it's not a career 
quote unquote. And so once I got to university and I was in these shared halls and we were with students from St. Martin's and students from London College of Fashion that I was like, oh my God, these people are doing fashion courses. That's a thing. And so I immediately tried to change to a fashion course and they were like, no, sorry, it's too late. Try again next year. And again, my aggressive ambition and impatience meant that I was like, okay, I'll make this journalism degree as fashion as I can. And I spoke in the introduction about how Agnes Dean used to serve you fish and chips. <laughs> she did. Which is an extraordinary thing that the two of you... It's like a came... fashion fable now at this point, isn't it? It's exactly. Like the, you the you left behind the tabards. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But that idea that both of you became these kind of titans of the fashion industry, uh, did you, again, like when you were eating fish and chips with Agnes Dean... Did yeah. you imagine that it would ever end up like this? Did you talk about fashion with her then? Or do you feel more that it was a sort of happy accident? Back then, it wasn't something that I really talked about. You know, I was kind of planning this career in journalism and writing. And I was thinking that I was going to go to London and be in kind of this world of media. And I didn't really know what that meant. <laughs> I remember thinking that I was always thinking that Agnes should be a model and kind of like encouraging her to do that for sure. And when I went, when I first went to university, she used to kind of, she was working in Manchester still at the time and she just used to come down and stay in my halls of residence when she got jobs. And I think once we moved in together in London, I think that's when we both kind of started to really pursue this dream of which we didn't know what it was really. So I'm going to get onto your first failure in a minute, but I wanted to ask you a very important question first, which is how you eat your fish and chips. Talk me through it. <laughs> uh, well, being a northerner, oh, just loads and loads of salt and vinegar. Um, Do you put the vinegar on mix- first? Yes. Yes, Good. because it helps the salt to stick. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and, you have to eat, and you have to eat them out of the paper. Absolutely, 100%. Okay, so your first failure is not to do with vinegar and sauce and what order you put it on but your first (laughs) failure is journalism which we've touched on so why have you chosen this as a failure well i chose this as my first one because as far as my journalistic career goes it lasted sort of about two years before i quickly moved on to something else and so i kind of i felt like whilst this was probably my first failure it was the one that created the opportunity that was my business that was kind of born out the back of me failing in that particular field. And I think to a lot of people, when I, when I started my company and I started writing these rhyming couplets on t-shirts, to me, it felt slightly sort of transitional. You know, I was using my quote unquote journalistic skills and just writing on t-shirts. And that was kind of what captured people's attention was what those t-shirts said, not necessarily the fact that they were every colour under the sun, although that definitely helped. But yeah, I would say my my failure as a journalist, you know, I never made it into the world that I sort of saw myself eventually coming to, which was like this world of fashion journalism and going to the shows and writing about the sort of the higher end of fashion. I, I My journalistic career was much more... At, the desk of teen magazines suggesting which colour juicy tube 15 year old should wear to the bus stop you know <laughs> it was ne- it was never the highest echelons of the industry by any by any stretch of the imagination i remember 
you know, running around Hampstead Heath away from park rangers trying to style S Club Juniors because we were trying to do a shoot with eight 13-year-olds behind a bush. It was just, it was not glamorous. It was not fashion. It was very much, your, you know, your entry-level journalistic career for sure. Am I right that you used to work for Smash Hips? Yeah, I was a fashion editor when I was about, I think, 21, 22. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I think this is kind of where this sort of failure comes from. It's just because I'm so attracted by fun and I'm so motivated by that. And I think, you know, whilst I was, I had these dreams and ambitions to be this sort of highbrow fashion journalist, the minute I ended up in a teen magazine on a work placement, I was just, I couldn't believe people got paid to do it. I was having so much fun. You know, we got called into a conference one day to watch Blue's new video and have a discussion on whether we thought that they were cover worthy again. And I was like, this is what I talk about in the pub. Like people are getting paid for this. This is incredible. And it was just like such fun and like a playful energy that, you know, I didn't feel pressured to be something that I wasn't. I just felt really comfortable. And I suppose that's what made me excel, I think, in that environment. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. And do you think having been a journalist in your early 20s, it gave you a sense of the need to be nice to people? Because I often think that if you've been a waiter... Or if you've just sort of seen the other side of things and then you become, quote unquote, a star in a particular industry and you're courted by journalists or you're served very graciously by waiters, that it actually helps to know what it's like from the other side. Yeah, I think so. But I also think my personality is that I just have an unquestionable thirst for people to like me. And yeah. so my solution... My- <laughs> And Me so too. My, solution, my solution to that just tends to be oversharing until I make someone laugh and I feel like, you know, I'm breaking through. So I think it's a bit of a combination. I don't think I've I've kind of got the personality where I can be sort of standoffish or, 
a bitch to someone. It's just, it's much more, I have a, a need for people to think that people like me. <laughs> well, it makes you an, a dream guest on this podcast, I have to say. So thank you very much for being that person. <laughs> oh, thanks. Did you feel, because I think, and I speak as a journalist myself, like I didn't have a very good time at school and mm. I never really felt like I fitted in. And I feel that journalism is one of those industries where it gets the misfits and what makes you a solid unit is the fact that you're connected by your misfittery. Did you feel yeah. that way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had a tough time at, sort of earlier on at school. I started at an all-boys senior school and I started there from about eight through to my second year at senior school and I left there because I was getting bullied. So I had a really tough time at that point in my life, but then I moved to this much smaller school, which is where I met the girl that I ended up running the business with for about 10 years. I just really sort of flourished in that environment. It was like big fish, small pond type idea. And so we were all already these misfits because it was such a small group of people. But yeah, I definitely did feel a sense of kinship once I got to London and I was in this kind of world of fashion and journalism and, and this world. I did definitely felt like, you know, there's a lot, a much more diverse grouping of people in that field, for sure. I really find it upsetting, the thought of a young Henry Holland being bullied. Yeah, it was rough. It was not very nice. I was camp and I was in an all-boys school of a thousand boys and people pick up on that and they pointed it out and it just wasn't very nice. And so I just decided it wasn't for me. It was, it was tough because it was kind of like a family tradition that we all went to that school. And so it was kind of, you know, that whole process of moving was not the easiest but once I got to my new school it was everything sort of lifted and everything was great again and you felt able to be yourself yeah exactly and just being around women well girls but the old boys school I went to when I was about eight or nine we were told to call the female teachers sir because quote unquote it would be I'm not joking it was an archaic school they told us to call the female teachers sir because it's easier I was like I can see you're a woman I'm not an idiot So it was an interesting place. So you're in London and you're working on teen magazines. And when is it that you come up with your first rhyming couplet T-shirt? First of all, I was having the time of my life. I absolutely loved my job. It was just the most fun. And as I said, it wasn't serious in any way. I was just really just getting on with life and loving it. My way of sort of getting out of this area of fashion, which was sort of looked down upon in certain fields, you know, this teen world that was a bit sort of not taken very seriously, was that I would go out to lots of clubs in and around London, like when there was clubs still in Soho and in the East End, and that was kind of where I made connections in the more sort of high fashion, I suppose, if you're going to say that sort of world. And one of those clubs was Boombox, which I'm sure lots of people have heard of and and know of, which was this Sunday night party in Hoxton Square, which was run by a guy called Richard Mortimer. And it became so well known. It just became this sort of almost global phenomenon at one point because it was sort of the leading night in this movement. God, it sounds so wanky this kind of trend I suppose called new rave and I was on my way to one of those parties with a group of my mates and we were just around their house having some drinks beforehand and started 
you know, making up these rhyming couplets about designers that we may or may not have wanted to sleep with at the time. And, and they become increasingly pornographic to the point that we, we edited it down to four, which were You Who Gareth Pugh, Get Your Freak On Giles Deacon, Do Me Daily, Christopher Bailey, and Cause Me Pain, Eddie Simone. <laughs> it was really just a kind of a bit of a joke amongst us and then something that we were wanted to wear ourselves. I made about 20 of each and I ended up just giving most of them away to get them out there. And yeah, that those four slogans completely changed the trajectory of my career and my life, I suppose, from that point. That's incredible because in, in the end, Giles Deacon and Gareth Pugh both wore one of your t-shirts, didn't they? Yeah, they did. So I gave, as I say, I gave them out to friends and I knew Gareth from going out and I knew Giles sort of one person removed through friends. And so I'd given one of each to Gareth and I was at his show at London Fashion Week and I was sat on the floor with all of his housemates. And one of his housemates was like, oh, Gareth's got one of your t-shirts on today. And I was like, what? So then I had this sort of mild panic attack throughout the whole show thinking, oh my God, is he going to come out in it at the end? Which he did. And Really, I later found out it was only because he hadn't had a chance to go home and change. Um, he'd been in the studio all night. And then the next day, I got a message saying Giles wants to wear the Gareth one for his show. And Agnes was walking the show as well. And so I managed to get this T-shirt out to Giles. And then Giles gave us tickets to the show. And it was me and Agnes's boyfriend at the time, this guy called Josh. And we had these tickets to the show, but Giles's show was always in this notoriously tiny venue. And he used to do it twice, so like two sittings, but it was still like massively oversubscribed. So the fact you had a ticket didn't necessarily mean you were going to get in. And so we turned up trying to be cool and quote, like fashionably late, and we couldn't get in. And so Josh and I climbed some scaffolding across the road <laughs> of the Rochelle Canteen in East London. And I was fuming, so I was wearing white jeans. I remember it vividly. And we climbed the scaffolding to try desperately to see if A, Agnes walks in the show, trying to watch her through the window, and B, see if Giles came out in my T-shirt at the end. And Giles is very shy anyway. And he just sort of popped his head round the corner and gave a little wave. So I didn't know if he'd worn it at all, even though I was up some scaffolding, two flights up, trying to see through the window. And then after that, did the demand just become insane? Yeah, after that, it was like the the speed at which things happened was really quite insane. It was maybe a couple of days later, maybe, I got a phone call at my desk at Bliss on my mobile and it was Sarah Moa. And she was like, oh, hi, Henry, it's Sarah Moa from American Vogue. I just wondered if you had a second talk. And I was just like, my mouth dropped open. I think I just dropped whatever I was doing, whatever, <laughs> whoever I was talking to and just walked out of the office and was like, this is clearly important. From between that sort of September through to the Christmas, we got orders. We were in like Dover Street Market in London, Joyce in Hong Kong, Barney's in New York, placed an order and did windows. It was just insane, the speed and the trajectory at which they kind of became global almost. And at this stage, were you still working for teen magazines? Yes, full time. So um, when did so, you give up your full time job? Well, I handed in my notice on the 26th of November. And so my last day was for the Christmas holidays. And then my first fashion show at London Fashion Week was February the 11th. That's incredible, um, Henry. Oh, my gosh, the stress of those months. I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. And 
uh, I always sort of use this quote and say ignorance is bliss because it absolutely was. I had no idea what I was doing, no idea what I was getting myself into, no idea of the importance or seriousness of, of what was riding on what I was about to do. And so in that vein, I just kind of blindly went out and did it in the only way I knew how. I didn't really have the pressure on me that I should have, I don't think. Yeah. Well, I just think that really helped. You know, I didn't ever have a moment where I just sat on the floor and just got overwhelmed by what was going on because I didn't really know or understand. That kind of came later. Has anyone ever taken exception to one of your slogan T-shirts? Anyone whose name you featured? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've got a couple of cease and desists, which I keep in a filing cabinet. But they, they was, those were mostly for later ones where I drew people. They weren't quite happy with their depiction. One from Donatella Versace, which is quite cool. There was one designer, Olivier Tyskins, who was a New York-based designer who took umbrage at the slogans, which I found quite interesting that he was the only one. And did you make something rhyme with Versace or it was just a picture? It was a picture. It was another round of T-shirts that I did a couple of years later where we did illustrations of naked designers and covered their okay. unmentionables with flowers. <laughs> um, and think... Alba Elbaz and Donatella Versace weren't so keen on those. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say, you're very rare in that you're a fashion designer with a sense of humour. But is there anything that you think you couldn't rhyme a couplet with? Yes, like orange. My, ne- my own name. It's insane. When you'd interviewed me previously and you'd asked me to do a rhyme for your name. Yes. And it's quite common. People would do that quite a lot and ask me to do that. And then, but often they would also say, what, what would be your rhyme? And the reason that there isn't one out there is because it doesn't work. So I think in my first ever show, I tried, I did like a, a sort of a wedding dress type thing where I tried to do, I don't need a husband, I've got House of Holland, which is... Touch and I mean, go. It's a half rhyme. Up. It's a half rhyme. It's a half rhyme, but it doesn't fully rhyme. But there was one incredible story when I was in Tokyo. I think I was doing a launch of a fragrance that I did in this group project a few years ago, and I was with a friend of mine. And it was not long after Kanye West had done the Taylor Swift VMAs stage crashing intrusion situation. Yes. And he'd gone to Tokyo because it's the perfect place to hide out because the culture there is such that there just isn't paparazzi and there, you know, nobody would, at the time, social media wasn't as big a thing. Nobody would take pictures of you or post you on social media and it was just the perfect place to sort of disappear. And we were in this club out there called Le Baron and ended up being with Kanye West <laughs> and he said to me in the club he was like come on man do a rhyme for me or do a t-shirt with my name or something and without missing a beat I just blurted out come all over my chest Kanye West <laughs> and he was like whoa back off um he wasn't quite prepared for what came out I was like well you asked for it um I think I'd had one or two drinks at that point but yeah that was one of the ones that's sort of blurted out sometimes they come instantly and sometimes it's a bit more tricky but it's always the first one that works the best the one that just sort of so, comes to mind straight away so interesting and hilarious and just in case anyone's interested so i did interview henry in 2009 and it was for The Observer, and I did ask him to rhyme with my name. And the one that you came up with instantly was Elizabeth Day covered in clay. 
So, well done. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to provide you with a simple I, surname. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely have gone much more, you know, much more risque than that these days, I think. Oh, excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear the new one. Did you do one for Agnes Dean? I did. It was one of the rudest ones because I felt like I could get away with it. <laughs> and that one was Flicky Bean for Agnes Dean. <laughs> Which, oh, looking back, looking back, I can't believe I opened a show with that. I just can't believe that I had the balls to do that. But yeah, that was the first ever runway look of my career, was a t-shirt that says Flicky Bean for Agnes <laughs> D. I remember that show vividly because, as I said, I, ignorance is bliss or whatever, but, and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I had an intern come and help me. He was a friend of a friend who sort of taught me how to cut a pattern in, on the floor of my flat in Chalk Farm. You know, I was like, oh, I need to make outfits rather than just T-shirts. And so I just made T-shirts that were slightly longer. <laughs> so I was like, ta-da, <laughs> T-shirt dress. And they were in no me by no means long enough so they basically flashed the girls knickers and then we did these kickers in collaboration for the shoes and put these knee socks on the girls it was part of this group fashion show called fashion east which run by a woman called lulu kennedy and three designers show at once back to back and so you all share a backstage area and it's absolute mayhem before the show so everyone's getting hair and makeup done and it's all just manic. I have no idea what's going on. You know, like the levels of anxiety are completely insane. And then just before the show, all three groups of models line up backstage just to, you know, to get sent out one by one. And it was at that point that all of my girls stood there in these tiny little T-shirts and very little else and then the next designer was stood behind them in a row every single one of them was wearing floor-length cardigans and balaclavas that I realized that it was winter it was a winter season and I was showing basically the most summery collection of clothes you'd ever seen and that was the first point I realized it was an autumn winter season and I was like holy shit <laughs> that was you learned on was, the job you learned on the job I definitely um, learned on the job what did your parents make of what you were doing they were incredibly supportive. They they always have been. I think, you know, as as long as there's drive, ambition and kind of a work ethic, then, you know, I could have been going out there to be a bin man. And, you know, when I was 23 and I said, you know, I'm giving up my career, I'm giving up my salary, I'm giving up my career to start my own company, they were all like, incredible. Well, how can we help? Like, this is so exciting what you do. You know, there was no questioning of, are you sure this is the good idea? Are you sure this is going to work? There was just no questioning of that whatsoever. And they just had complete and utter trust and faith in me that I was doing the right thing. Well, talking about your parents brings us on to your second failure, which I think is one of my favourite failures of all time, which is your failure to grow up. And you, <laughs> yes. you said to me in the email that you had asked your 73-year-old mother recently when you start to feel like a grown-up? And what was her reply? Still waiting, darling, still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I think if anyone knows my mum, that makes perfect sense. But yes, I had that exact conversation with her when I was at work a few months ago. I don't know, it's just something that I'm always like, I need to, surely this, I need to stop feeling like such a, a big kid and feel a bit more grown-up. Because when you're running a business and you're dealing with right, quite serious things, like tax bills and staffing issues and you know and all of those things you kind of feel a bit like you should feel more grown up and you, you should be dealing with things in a much more serious manner and you should be taking things really seriously and I think I've learned to realize that 
you can still do those things effectively without doing it with a sour face on you and without doing it in a way that isn't fun and isn't finding the joy and whatever can be found in doing it. Yeah, my failure to grow up is actually something that I now embrace, for sure. I mean, I've throughout my career, I've had this imposter complex and also this idea where I've, I've longed to be considered more seriously at times than I possibly have been by the press or by the industry as a whole. And then as soon as I kind of go after that, it immediately turns me off and fills me with anxiety that I'm going to be held up to a different set of standards and I go straight back to being my silly, frivolous self as much as possible. So, I think that's so interesting because you've identified something really quite profound there. I, like you, had that for years. I wanted to be taken seriously, quote-unquote, as a novelist. Mm. And then I realised that actually in trying to be more serious than I was, I wasn't being true to myself. And actually, true success lies in authenticity. And your authenticity is being playful and witty. And I feel like we've been fed a lie for so many millennia that there is one right way of doing things. There is one right way of operating a business or writing a book. And generally, it's the straight white male way. Yes, and that's actually, true. that's incorrect. <laughs> and and there are lots of different ways of doing things. But how much do you feel now that success is another word for authenticity? Absolutely. I think that's, I always talk about that. And I think, you know, I often, I've done interviews or, or panel discussions where people ask about advice for people going out into this industry. And I think because my journey into it was so atypical and, you know, it wasn't this sort of pre-planned career path or trajectory and I didn't study fashion and you know I didn't go the the traditional route that my story is quite unique in that sense but I always talk about just authenticity it's like this industry is a form of expression and it's um it's a way of expressing yourself and if you're not doing that in a way that's authentic and true to yourself then that's going to show immediately and cracks are going to appear and it's just going to look fake and people see through that straight away And have you ever been guilty of that? Have you ever done something where you felt like you were trying to be more grown up and more serious than you really were? Little bits, yeah, little bits, but nothing, nothing sort of seismic, I don't think, because I think it's sort of, as I say, it goes in waves. And so I'll sort of head down a certain path trying to appear to be slightly more serious and more grown up. And then ultimately it, it just... I just get pulled back to my authentic self and and just the way of doing things. I mean, we did a show once called Grow Up and it was kind of, in a way, trying to kind of communicate to the press and the people um, and the people at the show that we were, as a brand, we were growing up, as a, you know, our products growing up. We were trying to talk to a, a slightly older customer. And then I came out in a bright red hoodie with a carpet on the front that said, I love my job. <laughs> so it was kind of like, I tried to go one way and then ultimately I was just still myself. But it strikes me talking to you that you are someone who really does know yourself very well. Do you think that you've had that ability from an early age? Because sometimes it takes, I know it took me a while to know who I really was. Mm, I don't think I had it from an early age, no. I think it definitely... It's something that I've kind of developed more in adulthood. 
because I think you know when you become more comfortable with who you are and authentically then that becomes a much easier process and that definitely happens as you as you get older but this career's definitely helped you look at yourself a lot more and question yourself in certain ways because you're putting yourself out there I think when you're working in a creative industry of any kind you leave a piece of your heart and soul on the page or in each collection and you know you're basically opening up your diary for the world to read and then you're ultimately asking them to pass judgment on it so as a fashion designer we're doing that every three months with each collection we're like saying look at you know what's inside my head and what I want to talk about and then sit there with your eyes closed and your fists clenched waiting for people to pass judgment you know and I'm guessing it's the same as an author you know you, you put your heart and soul into a body of work and then you wait for someone to review it mm. it's quite a unique process to go through and do you read your reviews yeah I do and then but it's all it's always a tricky timing thing of when to read them because often the day after the show you're invariably quite hungover and coming sort of coming down from this real sort of endorphin rush of the excitement and the exhilaration and the nerves and the panic of like the last week of the build up to the show and so you kind of you find yourself in this bit of a dip anyway and so to read anything slightly negative it doesn't even have to be you know it can be the most glowing review and it might be like his shoes were a bit shit and you know it'll throw you into a five hour depression and be like what's wrong with my shoes oh my god (laughs) so you're just not equipped or strong enough to hear anything that's even remotely negative so it's about a timing thing reading them at a time when you can take them on board and use them as constructive feedback and not at a time when they're gonna make you sob for hours on end (laughs) I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about your mother, because from the small amount that you've said, she sounds utterly fabulous. She is. She's incredible. We're very similar, me and my mum, I think. We both love attention and we love excitement. She's been so thrilled and in awe of of my career in fashion. She's at every single show, front row. And after every show, she'll come up to me for weeks on end and be like, oh, I spoke to that person at the show. I spoke to that person at the show. And it'll be everyone from like, oh, I spoke to Kanye West at the show. Oh, I spoke to Sarah Moore at the show. And I'm just like, how do you manage to speak to 400 people in the space of nine minutes when people are being seated? And it's because she just sort of parades up and down and sort of receives visitors. <laughs> she loves the process of going to the shows. And, yeah, she's a very inspiring woman, my mum. She brought me up very much with a, a kind of a mindset that was all about manifestation and positivity and positive thought. And, you know, she wrote a book when I was about 11 or 12 called Living Positively with Stephanie Holland. And I was brought up listening to Louise Hay affirmation tape and things like that she's always kind of instilled in me this different belief system which I think so many people and myself included as a teenager just thought was ridiculous and you know thought was this embarrassing thing and now as an adult knowing that that's just sort of ingrained in me this belief system that anything is possible and believing is seeing and all of those things is such a valuable lesson to have. So that's super interesting. Do you have a, a mood board and do you manifest things in your own life? Yeah, I don't do mood boards, but I do manifest things where I, I sort of visualise things and um, 
do the whole gratitude thing. I mean, the biggest thing that they teach you in manifestation is acknowledging the things that you ask for when you receive them and, and showing gratitude to acknowledge that the universe has provided the things for you. And my mum lives in France, so I had a house in France for many years and we used to go over as, as groups of friends and she would sort of give these mini manifestation courses and then send everybody off to go and write down what they wanted from life and and do these visualizations and stuff which to me always just seemed so normal <laughs> but as an adult people always found it so interesting and exciting that's fascinating given what we're about to discuss which is your third failure and i'm so so grateful that you have chosen to talk about it because mm. i don't think enough people do and i think it will bring an enormous amount of comfort to a lot of listeners and it is your failure to keep your business solvent. So yes, tell us about that, Henry, in your own words. Well, I thought, given the name of the podcast and, and kind of that's probably the reason why we're, we're speaking at this point in my life, I think it was sort of the elephant in the room. I felt like it was important to talk about. So we closed the business, or we called in the administrators in March this year, and I wouldn't say it was a direct result of coronavirus, but definitely when that hit in China late last year, early this year, it definitely impacted us quite heavily because quite a lot of our, our business at that point was coming from China. And so, you know, potentially it would have happened anyway, but it definitely sped things up with what we're going through at the moment now globally. In very basic terms, I suppose it is a failure. It seems a failure because the business is no longer able to continue. And it was, you know, it got to the point where it was the responsible thing to do to acknowledge that and move on and make sure that you know we protected what was there as much as possible and chose the right time to exit and it was heart-wrenching it was a really emotional devastating experience but one that kind of played out for me personally I think over the space of around six months prior the process of making that decision to walk away and to call time and to acknowledge that you know, this was the right thing to do at this point was the hardest thing. And that was the thing that really got me and I really struggled with. And that was kind of for the last half of last year, I think just kind of realising that things were a struggle, you know, the the fun was getting less and less because it was being so overwhelmed by much more serious and, and trickier situations and having to kind of continue to drive something I think the biggest thing for me that whole period was the duality of it you know we talked a lot earlier about authenticity and for me being authentic would have been going out there and being like shit things are really tough actually but you're actually in this game you're out there selling a dream and being like everything's brilliant everything's fantastic you know everything's bigger better shinier newer because you're you're selling that dream and in reality you're going back day after day like trying to figure out how we can continue and trying to work your ass off, trying to, you know, generate the money to keep things moving and all of those things. And so I found that duality of it quite tricky. So actually, I suppose the moment of making that decision and saying, okay, I think this is the right thing to do now, this is, it's time to call it, was just this incredible weight lifted off my shoulders. And how much is that duality to do with the responsibility you have to employees. I mean, that must be a crushing weight of responsibility. That was a crushing weight for sure. And I think I managed to mitigate that quite early on by being really open with them 
because for me they were the most important part in all of this and it was so important for them to understand as soon as possible to not kind of walk in one day and say bye guys that's it and so you know I tried to bring them in on the process because it's a real team effort and you know I wanted them to understand and also open things up for suggestions and ideas of ways that we could you know improve things or turn things around and so that bit I kind of we did in in stages so I was able to mitigate that level of responsibility and I think the biggest sort of weight I suppose was responsibility to people that we worked with suppliers and you know investors and and all there's so many different pieces to the puzzle there's so many things that go through your head it's a lot how scary is it because I know that for many of us even if we're not business owners money worries keep us awake at night I mean were there periods of time when you were really terrified absolutely like petrified of what people were going to say petrified of what people were going to think petrified of letting people down I think that's a real a thing of mine that you know I was talking earlier I have this unquenchable thirst for people to like me and you know that kind of extends into I really don't want to ever let people down and when people have you know invested their trust and and money into you it's a really difficult thing to get to a point where you're like this isn't going to be able to work out in the way that it I would want it to you know so it's a lot of emotional pressure for sure and how have you found a way of living with it to the extent that you can talk to me about it and you have courageously chosen it as one of your failures? How have you got to that point? What kind of thinking have you had to put into place? Well, I think it kind of connects back to that first failure that I talked about with you today. It's about, you know, my failure in journalism created this incredible opportunity that was my brand for 13 and a half years. And so I'm just seeing this as making space for the next opportunity. And it's really difficult to look back on what I achieved with the business and and what we all experienced, anyone who's a part of it, as anything but just the most overwhelmingly exciting and inspiring kind of time that just I have nothing but pride and gratitude for. If I sit and think about anything over the last 13 years to do with the business, I just I have so much joy and excitement and it was such a great time. So it's really hard to look back on something that's so positive as it being negative in any way, if that makes sense. It does. It makes total sense. You wrote something to me in the initial email where you outlined your failures, which I wanted to quote back to you because I just think it's so powerful which is I think I didn't realize until now how much I was weighed down by the constant drive for success that I was so distracted by over the last decade and that for me goes to the heart of what this podcast is about that there is this notion of success on paper and the and the way that you describe it as a distraction is super interesting to me because it sounds to me as if that wasn't actually where your happiness lay. Yeah, potentially. And I think that's something that I've only been able to realise given the space outside of it, you know, and no longer having that daily distraction and, and constant drive. Because I think when I set out in this business and when I started House of Holland, 
it was something that found me in a way. And so I saw myself very much as just realising every opportunity that presented itself to the best of my ability and working my arse off to make it the best and the biggest and the most global and as big as I could make it. And I was so distracted by that just blind drive to do that that I didn't ever sort of sit down and be like, is this what I want to be doing at this stage? You know, is, is this the best thing for me? And even to the point that, you know, is this the best thing for the business at this point? Or is this the best thing for my relationships and my life? And it does feel a bit like at the time, sort of now sort of stepping outside of it and looking back, that it, it was, I was distracted just by this blinding kind of drive for all, success. Yeah, and all-consuming. Yeah, completely, yeah. You are married, and I wonder, I know that the failure of businesses can often have a really tough impact on relationships, and it's a difficult thing for a partner to deal with. How has your husband been through this process? He's been incredible. He's definitely been one of the things that's really helped me get through the process. And I think he worked in the industry, so he kind of has a level of understanding which helps. But definitely the period, the sort of the last half of last year when, you know, I was talking about that emotional wrenching of making the decisions and coming really slowly to the realisation that things might not work out and things might not go on forever. That's when he was kind of really amazing. And I think it's been a great thing for all of my relationships, actually just that weight that's been lifted that I talked about. I just think it's allowed me so much more to let so many other things in that perhaps I hadn't given as much space and time to as I had before. It's quite rare on this podcast that I speak to someone who is currently in the grip of a failure. And one of the things that I think it is necessary to say to people is that whilst I and you might believe that failure can be an opportunity wrapped up in something different, Mm. that I also believe it's necessary to take time to grieve a loss And I wonder if you're going to take time to do that or maybe you feel that you're in that time now and how much are you thinking of the future or is it just too early to ask that question? Yes, I definitely questioned me coming on and talking to you about this and and thought about, you know, this whole idea because I'm I'm sure that I'm still very much in the midst of many different stages that I'm going to go through with this whole process. But I just thought it was an important thing to talk about and kind of share my experiences with. But, you know, I may well end up going into a kind of a much more sad grieving process down the line. But I do feel like that happened before making the decision that the time was right to move on. I definitely felt like I had those sort of dark times and those sad days. And, you know, we talked about this before we did the podcast, but this idea that most people are happy to talk about their failures once they've got to their next success and they can be like oh well that failed but now look what I've done and so I'm kind of I'm not yet there I don't have a a very clear path as to what my next move is going to be I don't have a clear decision on what my plans are for now but I think this global meltdown that we find ourselves in is really helping me just take a bit of time and acknowledge this pause and 
embrace it a little bit whilst getting all of my ducks in a row and getting my things together and figuring out what I want my next move to be and making sure that I have enough time to think about what I want it to be and not just going out with this blind ambition that we talked about before and just going into the first opportunity that presents itself because it looks like a success at that moment. Acknowledge the pause is just such a beautiful phrase and I wish I had it on a t-shirt and I wish I knew someone who could, <laughs> I don't know, like do a slogan t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> what rhymes with pause, gosh. Oh, laws. Anyway, that's your job. Um, <laughs> yeah. What advice would you give anyone who is facing the threat of losing their job or their business because of what's happened recently with the global pandemic? and they are really terrified of the blankness of the future, what advice would you give? I can only ever give advice from my perspective of how I'm dealing with things. And I think my advice would be to just do your best to not get weighed down by the quote-unquote failure of one thing and channel all of that energy that you would have been ploughing into something that was potentially this sort of sinking ship or something that was not going to turn itself around into something new and exciting and putting all of those energies into building new opportunities and finding the excitement in the newness. I think I'm very excited by change and newness, which definitely helps. I know that some people find it really unnerving and unsettling. So I'm quite lucky that I find it quite easy to focus on the next thing focus on the newness and opportunity. I think that's such an important point. And I, I think you're totally right. When your life completely changes and you don't know where you're going next, that can also be interpreted as a blank canvas. And there's a yes. liberation to that. Yes. You know, use this time, as I was saying earlier, this is probably never going to happen to us again, where we're going to you know, the world is effectively hitting the pause button and we can literally sit and take a bit of time. And even if, you know, someone's going through a downturn as a result of what's happening at the moment in the world, then using this time that we have on this sort of pause, it's basically like the world's hitting Control-Alt-Delete. And that just means that we're refreshing and we're restarting, you know, I don't think it's, we're not closing down, we're just restarting and we're re-energising for the next chapter. I love that, Henry Holland, thank you. And can I be an awful, awful interviewer and put you right on the spot and ask you if you have another rhyming couplet for Elizabeth Day, given that you dismissed your earlier one about being covered in clay? Yeah, that was so lame. I apologise. <laughs> How about I give up being gay for Elizabeth Day? Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> much oh my better. God, I love it so much. <laughs> much more on brand, I feel like, given it only took me how many years? 10. Nine years? No, 10. 11. Yeah. 11. It's only 2009. Years. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's speak in another 10 and we'll see where we are. <laughs> I might still be sat in my house in isolation. Let's hope not. Oh, Henry Holland, you have been an absolute delight. I cannot thank you enough for your honesty, your courage, your humour. I'm so delighted you're not a fishmonger. And thank you so, so much <laughs> for coming on How to Thank Pay. you. Thank you so much.
If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.